Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text today is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to look on the screens behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, with, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word and... We ask that you would speak to us. We desperately need to hear a word from you. We, we come here and uh, some of us need encouragement. Some of us don't feel like we can, we can even move on to the next hour, let alone the next day. So I pray that you would provide the grace that we need through your spirit and through your word. I pray that as your word is proclaimed that we would be rejuvenated that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us would hit us afresh. Father, we, we beg that if we need to be convicted and changed, that you would do that and that we would have hearts that would respond. So I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to receive your word and that we would leave this place not mere hearers of your word, but hearers and doers. So I pray that you would be glorified, that your gospel would be on display and that you would use our time together in your word for our good and for the good of our city and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. We are in our summer sermon series through the book of James. Uh, the book of James is, is a favorite New Testament book among a lot of people, um, unless you're preaching it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then it, then it can be really challenging and difficult in some places. And I think probably the hardest part about James is that he's really simple, okay? Now, you're going to think I'm crazy because of, of how difficult this passage is, but the passage before us today is not difficult because it's, you know, convoluted. It's, it's actually pretty simple. Um, it's, it just presents a few difficulties, and then every single passage in James is so heart-piercing and so challenging. And so, you know, if you were looking 
if you were looking for a just easygoing, comforting sermon series this summer, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we did not offer that for you. We, we preached verse by verse through books of the Bible. We decided to walk through James. And um, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to walk through James this summer is because we are a people, we are a Reformation people, which means that we believe in the five solas, which, which means we believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we, we proclaim that and we rejoice in that. And we love sound doctrine here at Trace, Trace Crossing, but a lot of times our weakness, if that's really where, where our bread and butter is, our weakness is in the practical aspects of Christian living. Not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. Not just valuing scripture as God breathed, but responding to scripture as if it were God breathed in obedience to it. And so I'm praying that this, this sermon series has been helpful for you in those ways. Uh, so far in the book of James, we've learned a lot about saving faith. James is really concerned about saving faith. Uh, so far we've learned that saving faith is a gift of God's grace. We, we've learned that saving faith is a reception of God's grace in Christ. It's not something that we're putting forward. It's just re- the reception of a gift. We've learned that saving faith obeys, as James has called us, not to be mere hearers, but to be hearers and doers of the word. We've learned that saving faith gives us new life. We've learned that saving faith unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one because of our shared faith in the one Savior that we have, Jesus Christ. And we've learned that saving faith enriches us in Christ, that we are, in fact, rich. No matter our socioeconomic status, we are rich in Christ because of what he has done for us. And last week, the the first half of James chapter two, we considered how our faith sees. We, We discussed the eyes of faith. We saw that saving faith gives us eyes to see people the way that God sees them. As we were, we were, Exhorted to show no partiality, no favoritism, and no discrimination toward anyone on the basis of worldly standards. Instead, to see people as God sees them. This week, then, what we're going to consider is how our faith is seen. So if last week we considered how our faith sees, this week we're considering how our faith is seen. And it's, it's a good question for us right at the beginning. How is our faith in Jesus seen in our city? How is it seen? How do your friends, how do your coworkers, your, your spouse, your children, how, how do they see your faith? I'm not, I'm not talking about whenever you have a conversation with someone that turns evangelistic and you share with them the content of the gospel. I'm not talking about Bible stories that you're reading with your kids. I'm, I'm talking about how is the gospel, how is our faith in Jesus Christ seen through our actions? Or is it at all? That's, that's the concern of, of James 2, 14 through 26. But before we jump into this, this passage, we need to discuss the elephant in the text, okay? There is an elephant in this text, and I don't know if you noticed it or not. Um, probably depends on how many Bible drills you did as a kid, I don't know, or how many times you've read through Romans. Uh, but there, there is an elephant in this passage. If you look at James chapter 2, verse 24, you see a line of text there that 
seems to contradict another part of scripture. And we don't approach this lightly, okay? Like James was one of the last books that was approved to be a part of the canon. Uh, you know, our, our ancestors in the faith, as they considered this book, they, they saw this, this one verse as problematic because we know that scripture does not contradict scripture, but this verse seems to contradict another verse in scripture. And I don't know if you know it, but it's Romans chapter three, verse 28. So I'm gonna invite you to turn there, but keep your place, keep your place in James two. I want us to look at these side by side. As we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that means that we do not avoid any verses in the Bible. We don't avoid difficult passages. We deal with them. We admit um, where we are weak and where our wisdom uh, is limited, but we deal with them as best we can. So in the history of the church, scholars have debated whether James 2.24 contradicts Romans 3.28. Does James 2.24 contradict Romans 3.28? Some commentators actually, and this is, this is not convincing by the way, but they actually contend that this hypothetical person in James 2.18 where it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, and, and he goes to oppose this person. Some say that James is actually replying to Paul. Now, that's, that's really not likely because the consensus is that James was written some 20 years before, before Romans was written, so it's, it's not likely. It's not that James didn't know Paul or, or his, his doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, but it's just not likely that that's the case. But just, just to let you know that this, this has been debated for centuries, for centuries, and we don't need to just gloss over this passage as if, you know, oh, it's no big deal. I know how we can work around that. I want you to feel the, the trouble here. Feel the trouble. All right, are you in Romans chapter three? Okay, so Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Turn, now, now, now flip back to James 2. Hold your place in Romans 3. I want you to like do, like, like just flip back and forth so you can read it, so you can see it. See the pro- I want you to see the problem. Um, I'm not trying to create a bunch of doubters in here, but I do want you to feel the weight of the problem. Okay, so Paul said, so are you in James 2? I'm, now I'm gonna read what Romans 3.28 says, and I want you to follow along with James 2.24. All right, it's gonna be confusing, but I just want you to do that. So Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then James says in James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see it? That's a problem, or it seems to be a problem. It seems to be a very clear example of a contradiction in Scripture. How do we resolve it? No, I'm actually asking. I don't don't know, so I'm waiting for someone to answer. I'm not real sure. (laughs) So... The way, the way that we can resolve this, this conflict, or the best way that I know how to do it, is to consider the context. Consider the context of Romans 3 and then consider the context of James 2. What is Paul talking about when he talks about justification? Because the hard part, especially whenever you take a text from Greek to English, is you lose some of the nuance and you have the same word justification being used in 
two different ways. But it's not, it's not immediately apparent until you consider the context of the entire passage. So here's what, here's what I'll say about this, about this apparent contradiction. In Romans 3, Paul speaks of justification as the initial, immediate, forensic, or judicial declaration of innocence from God upon sinners on the basis of their faith in Jesus. So I'll say that one more time. When Paul speaks of justification, he's speaking of justification as the initial and immediate forensic declaration of innocence from God upon sinners on the basis of their faith in Jesus, which simply means that the first time you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, there is a declaration of innocence from God upon you not on the basis of any work that you have done up until that point, but solely on the basis of your reception of what Jesus has done. Because what Jesus did is he took the punishment that you deserve and he exchanges his righteousness for your unrighteousness and you receive his righteousness. So you are counted as righteous even though you were sinful. And so God declares you to be innocent in the moment. Okay, so it's that, it's that initial, immediate declaration of innocence from God upon sinners on the basis of their faith in Jesus. So, faith apart from works is all that is necessary to elicit such a declaration from God. We are justified by faith apart from works. Okay, then James 2. In James 2, James speaks of justification not as an initial immediate forensic declaration from God, but as a final vindication from God upon sinners on the basis of their faith in Jesus, evidenced by works. So when you consider all the times when Jesus said that only those who endure till the end will be saved, okay, only those who endure until the end will be saved, that we will be judged by what we have done. Okay, this is, the, this is the essence of justification in James's mind. That no one is justified by faith alone in the sense that on the day of judgment, real saving faith will be evidenced by works. So of course, on that last day, no one will be justified who did not demonstrate good works flowing from real saving faith. So anyone who does not demonstrate, now we're getting into the heart of James's argument, anyone who does not demonstrate good works never had saving faith. So they will not be justified on that day. So, okay, so we can say two things then in conclusion. First, Paul denies the necessity of pre-conversion works. Okay, he denies the necessity of pre-conversion works with faith for initial justification. No works are necessary to elicit God's justifying grace upon a sinner. It's merely by faith in Jesus and what he has, who he is and what he has done for us. James then affirms the necessity of post-conversion works of faith for final justification. So they're not even talking about the same thing. It would be a contradiction if they were speaking of justification in the exact same way, but they're not talking about the same thing. Paul is emphasizing, he's denying that pre-conversion works are necessary. And James is affirming that post-conversion works are absolutely necessary for final justification. Clear as mud? 
All right, that's all I got. Um, don't, don't worry, if, if, you're still, if you're still really confused, um, Matt Wilburn said that he would be willing to meet with all of you right after the service, so you know, just, just see Matt, um, he'll, he'll deal with that. Um, no, if you're confused, don't worry, I, I consulted nine, nine commentaries this week and I came into this sermon with as much clarity as confusion. <laughs> it's like it's the, the clearer it became, the more confused I would get on, on other issues with it. Um, I do plan, and I don't know if I'll get to it, but I do plan to write a brief email this week, just kind of sharing some of, some of the insights I gleaned, some, some quotes that, that I think are helpful, and hopefully it will help you uh, as, we, as we look at what seems to be a really serious tension um, in this passage. Now, to, to pivot, as confusing and difficult as not only, not only that apparent tension, but it, when you look at verse 18, there is no consensus on, do you see the quotation marks? You see the quotation marks in verse 18? Okay, that's not in the original Greek, those quotation marks. That's an interpretative question. It's a, it's a question of interpretation. Because he says, but someone will say, okay, we know that the person starts talking with the word you, but when does, when does his speech stop? And, and there are like three valid options on this. In the ESV, the, the committee who translated the ESV, they, they put the quotations around, you have faith and I have works. But, but there are other ways to, to look at that. So, so this passage has some, you know, difficulties with translation. It has difficulties with interpretation. And then obviously what appears to be a really serious contradiction from James 2.24 and Romans 3:28 but as confusing and difficult as a couple verses are in this passage the overall message and thrust of this passage is so clear it's scary this is the part you're going to wish was a little more confusing his overall message is clear and so challenging for us especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time so the main idea of this passage has two parts to it, a positive and a negative. First, the negative. A faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't save. His thesis in, in verse 14, like, wakes up his readers. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And if that's all you read, it's like, well, what good is it? I mean, and then this follow-up question, can that faith save him? That's actually a weak translation from the Greek because the way it is in the Greek, a, a more literal way to translate that would be that faith can't save him, can it? That's the thesis here. A faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't save. There is a way to appear to be a Christian without actually being a Christian. There is a way to profess and confess faith in Jesus without actually having faith in Jesus. That's scary for Bible Belt Christianity. It's, it's, it should be. It scares me. So that's the negative side of the main idea. A faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't save. The positive side, saving faith is a working faith. Saving faith is a working faith in works of obedience to God and in works of love for others. Now, to be clear, good works, they originate from faith. 
they originate from faith. They don't, they don't create faith. It's faith that's producing works. But faith itself matures through works, and we're going to see that later with the example of Abraham. Apart from works, faith does not ultimately justify because faith without works isn't real. It isn't real saving faith. So as we jump into the passage now, there there are two pictures that I think James is giving us. He's giving us a picture of dead faith and he's giving us a picture of living faith. There are two examples of dead faith in this passage and there are two examples of living faith. The dead faith, it's a workless faith that cannot save. A workless faith that cannot save. And then the living faith is a saving faith that always works. So let's, let's, look, at, let's look at these examples uh, together. So first, two examples of dead faith. And the overall point here is that a faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't save. So first, in verses 14 through 17, what we see is a profession of faith without love for others is useless. We see that a profession of faith without love for others is useless. Let's, let's look at verses 14 through 17. So his thesis in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And now he, now he has an illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is speaking here of hypocritical faith. What we see is that mere profession of faith that does not produce love for others is useless. It's dead. James is concerned with those who have raised a hand, walked an aisle, signed a card, prayed a prayer. And there's nothing wrong with any of those any of those methods of coming to faith in Jesus, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong if someone asks you, do you want to believe in Jesus, and you raise your hand. Like, it gets a bad rap. It's okay. It's okay to walk and aisle and come down and pray to receive Christ. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But James is concerned with those who do those things and from that point forward show no marks of real faith. He's concerned with mere profession of faith without works that follow without love springing out of that faith. And so a scary reality here, it is possible to profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to believe the content of the gospel and not be saved. Remember Paul, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. James brings clarity to that. If that really happened, and you do believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and saved you, you will work. You will. You will love others. And if you don't, you never trusted him in the first place. So it's possible, it is possible to profess faith in Jesus, to profess him as your savior, to profess him as your Lord, and to believe the content of the gospel. You believe Jesus was a real person. You believe Jesus was born. You know all the things about Jesus and you believe them to be true. 
You believe that he died for your sins. You believe that he rose from the dead. You believe all of that. And yet, James is telling us, mere profession of faith alone, apart from acts of love, cannot save. So, a profession of faith in Jesus is necessary in and of itself. Okay, you, you, you have to be- confess and believe in Jesus alone for salvation. But by itself, by itself, if it doesn't produce anything, any real marks of that faith, it's not real. And the way I see this, a profession of faith is not necessarily real faith, the same way that a profession of love is not necessarily real love. And some of you may have experience with that, where someone says they love you. They, say it, they may say it every day, and you know by their actions they don't. They don't. Because if they did, they'd be treating me differently. If, if they did, I would see it. You know, how many brides and grooms profess love on their wedding day? You know, we, all of them. They all do. But, but professions of love are proven to be true over time. Through what? Actions. Through actions. You can say you love someone all day long, but if you don't show it, your profession is proved to be false or at bare minimum useless and dead. The same is true of saving faith. Real faith produces fruit. Apart from fruit, apart from works, faith is useless. It's phony. It's dead. Real faith produces real love for others. And a faith that does not produce love for others is dead. It's phony. It's useless. Consider James's illustration here. Look at verse 15. James is saying that not just someone off the street, a brother or sister. So just put yourself in the situation. You are the person James is talking about and another member of this church comes to you in need, in real desperate need. And then you respond to them with trite religious phrases. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Oh, brother, sister, trust God. He will provide. He will provide for you. Trust him to take care of your needs. I'm sure that God will take care of you. According to James, such a person doesn't demonstrate evidence of saving faith. And his illustration is is teaching us this because he's saying responding to hunger and nakedness with words rather than with food and clothes is just as useless as claiming to have faith in Jesus without working out that faith in love. It's just as useless. Someone comes to you hungry and you pat them on the back and pray for them without giving them something to eat. That's useless. He's saying claiming to believe in Jesus and not living out that faith, it's useless. It's no good. It's phony. It's dead. So a question for us is, as we look at those three, those verses, how far does our faith extend? How far? Beyond the time that you walked the aisle, beyond the time that you first prayed to receive Jesus, beyond the time that you were baptized? Or does it stop there? Does it extend beyond mere confession? Someone asks you if you're a Christian, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Is that it? Is that as far as it extends? Or does it work? 
Does it express itself in love for others? Is your faith in Jesus the motivation for your care for others? You see, Jesus' people, this is just kind of a side note from this, Jesus' people have to care about the people Jesus cares about. All right? It's, it's no mistake that the illustrations that James continues to use, he keeps using illustrations of those who are poor. Okay? Our church doesn't have the option. We must care for those in our midst who are in need. We don't have the option to shirk that responsibility. And more than that, we need to find ways to reach out and care for those in our city who are hurting the most. It's what faith does. It produces real and genuine and powerful love and care for others. And if it doesn't, it's useless. It's phony. It's dead. Okay, so that's, that's the first example of dead faith that, that James gives us. And the second one is a little more sinister, okay? And it's, it, this was the one that scares me the most. So the second example of dead faith is orthodox beliefs without good works is demonic. Okay, it's not just bad. It's not just something you shouldn't pursue. It is demonic, Orthodox beliefs without good works is demonic. Look at verse 18. So he begins this, this diatribe. He begins this, he, has, he inserts this, this opposition, um, this opponent who says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Which, which probably means he's trying to say faith is a gift that some exercise and then other people exercise, you know, works of charity. Some people really are good at reaching out, but some people are good at faith. Why are you acting like that everyone who has faith in Jesus must demonstrate good works? It's not necessary. And then, and then you know, James responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then here's the example. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. All right, that's, that's the famous saying from the Shema. These are Jewish Christians. This is just orthodoxy, that God is one, that there is one God and that he is unified in his being and in his persons, that God is one. It's a Christian doctrine as well that, that we affirm and you must affirm. You, at, least, you at least at minimum cannot deny that God is one and be a Christian. So you believe that God is one. You do well. This little sarcastic jab. Good for you. Good for you. You believe that God is one. Well, he says, even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that God is one, and they shudder. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And then verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he continues his answer here in a minute. But let's stop here for a second and consider what James is saying here. He puts before us orthodox demons, which just means demons that have correct theology about God. They believe, they, they believe true things about God. Now, before, before we go too further, I want you to know, Orthodoxy or correct, faithful, Bible-based theology is necessary. Okay, it's, it's absolutely necessary. There are certain 
theological truths that you cannot deny and be a Christian. You can't deny the Trinity. You can't. You, 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 can't, you can't deny that our God is three in one. You, you can't deny that. You can't deny the deity of Jesus, for example, if you believe Jesus was just a man. You can't do that and be a Christian. So it's important. It's necessary. But orthodoxy alone cannot save. It can't save. As necessary as correct theology is, it cannot save by its own merit. Mere theological confession, mere mental, intellectual assent to certain truths, apart from works, isn't just useless. It's essentially demonic. That's what the demons do. That's what the demons do. The demons are orthodox in their theology. They believe correct biblical doctrine about God. They can confess the Shema with these Jewish Christians. That God is one. They affirm that too. So James is saying, oh, good for you. Good for you. You affirm correct doctrine. That's great. So do the demons. Are you no different from a demon? That you know all of the right things in your head and yet it's producing no love for God, no love for others in your life? You see these demons, they're orthodox in their theology, but what do you see? What's their response? They know that God is one. They know all of these glorious truths about God and yet they shudder before him. They stand in sheer terror and fear before God. The demons know all about God, yet they stand condemned before God. Do you know why? Because their knowledge of God doesn't lead to true saving faith. It doesn't lead to true saving faith. So when we possess true doctrine, but have no works of love in our lives, we're not saved. It's, it's, it's a frightening reality. So, so as we grow in our knowledge of God and his word, which we will, if you, if you continue in membership here at Trace Crossing, that's what we will do, okay? No one cares more about theology than I do. I want us to pursue theological precision and doctrinal clarity. I want us to grow in our understanding of the word together. But as we grow in our understanding and knowledge of God and his word, we must also be growing in our love for him and our love for others. How tragic would it be if we are known for two things at the same time, caring about sound doctrine and not caring about people? It would be so tragic for people to know us as, oh, that's the church, they do care about doctrine, but I'm not sure they care about people. I pray that is your prayer as well as it is mine, that we would not be that kind of people. We must do both. There's no reason to separate the two. We must pursue theological precision and doctrinal clarity and pursue those people in the world that have long been given up on. So, getting back to James 1, we should not just be hearers of the word. We should not just be those who know a lot about the word. We should be those who know and then do. Know and then obey. Orthodox beliefs without good works, it's demonic. 
All right, so those are the two examples of dead faith. A dead faith is either a mere profession without good works or mental assent to theological truth without good works. And then now he moves on to the positive side of it, the two examples of living faith. And the overall point he has here is that saving faith, we know, we know what a faith that doesn't save does. It, it doesn't work. But saving faith always works. It always works. Work. So let's look at verse 21 and take it all the way to verse 24. So in verse 20, he's kind of started it. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here we go. Verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works? There's that problem again. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is his case study in his claim that final vindication on the day of judgment will be on the basis of a faith that works. So what do we, what do we see here? First, we know about the story of Abraham. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, we know that Abraham trusted God's promise to him. God promised to give Abraham a son. All right. And Abraham and his wife were really old. It didn't make any natural sense. And yet, Abraham trusted that God would give him a son, would provide for him a son. And that trust, we learn, was counted to him as righteousness. This is a picture of true saving faith. Paul uses that in, in Romans chapter 4 as an example of true saving faith and justification. That his faith was counted as righteousness. And we see that in Genesis 15 verse 6. Well, what do we see later in the story of Abraham in Genesis 22? Because Abraham trusted God and his promises to him, he acted in sacrificial obedience. So Abraham's sacrificial obedience proved, demonstrated, evidenced his faith. Abraham's saving faith was an active faith. James's point is that saving faith is always and only an active faith. And obviously the negative side of that faith that does not act is a faith that does not save. Saving faith always acts in obedience to God. So when Abraham demonstrated this sacrificial, willful obedience to God, he was justified. In what way? In the sense that he was vindicated as one trusting in God's promises. Abraham was justified through his action because it was a work that flowed from real saving faith. So his willingness, think about it. So Abraham, Abraham has received this promise from God that I will give you a son. And then he gives him a son, Isaac. And now Isaac is the heir. He, he is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And now, and in chapter 22, what we learn is that God tells Abraham to take his son, which is the fulfillment of the promise God made himself, to be killed. Take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. 
That, that doesn't make any sense. It would not have made any sense to Abraham. And in that moment, in that moment when he hears that, Abraham immediately obeys the Lord. And he takes his son and he builds an altar and he was prepared to kill his own son because God told him to do it. How could he do that? Apart from true faith in God. Abraham had such faith in God that he knew he would not break his own promise. He would not break his own promise. He trusted him to the point that he believed God would even raise his son from the dead if he went through with this. So the Lord says in verse 12 of Genesis 22, as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, it says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, that's vindication language. This is the kind of justification that James is talking about. Now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So it's not, okay, God says that. This is, this is the biblical writers giving human emotion to God. This is a way for us to understand God better. It's not that God did not know whether or not Abraham's faith was real and he needed some kind of test so that he could really find out. God didn't need the test. The test was not for God. The test was for Abraham. And through the work of obedience, Abraham's faith matured. What did Abraham have to ask himself? Can you put yourself in his shoes? Abraham had to ask himself, do I really believe what I say I believe? When the moment of action came, he had, he had to ask himself that question. Do I really believe what I say I believe? Abraham trusted God's promise so deeply that he was sure. He was sure if he sacrificed his son, that God would still keep his promise. He didn't know how, but he was confident that the Lord would keep his promise to him. His faith acted, and so his faith was vindicated. Abraham was vindicated or justified by his work of sacrificial obedience to God. Now, I hope you see something else at the end of that, at the end of verse 23, and he was called a friend of God. Saving faith the reason we know that the demons don't have saving faith even though they have orthodox theology is because they shudder in the presence of God. They're in terror because they're condemned. Abraham has peace with God. Abraham is called a friend of God because he has real saving faith. So some practical implications here from what can we, what can we take away from the example of Abraham? So first, as faith in Jesus grows, we should become more sacrificial and more obedient. As you grow in your knowledge and understanding and trust in the Lord, you should grow in your obedience to him and your affection for him. And what else, another thing we learn here, especially in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. We learn that initial faith, though genuine and saving, is not perfect. It's not perfect. That's why we don't stop. The first time we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, that's why repentance and faith is a daily grind for the Christian. Our faith grows and it matures and it will one day be perfect and complete through our works. Through our works. Our faith lives and grows on good works done in Christ's name and for his sake. 
So if you want your faith to grow, you have to find ways to put your faith to work. That's, that's how it grows. All right, there's, there's a second example here, um, the positive side of James's main point, that saving faith is a working faith. Saving faith always works. In, in verse 25, we, we see a reference to Rahab. So let's, let's look at that. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So I'm not going to walk back through everything I just did with Abraham because he's saying the same thing is true of Rahab that was true of Abraham. Do you notice the examples that he gives? Because to make this point, James literally could have used any number of people in the Old Testament. He could have used any person. Why do you think he chose Abraham and Rahab? They are extreme examples Abraham was a wealthy patriarch of of the Jewish faith. And Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. And he uses them as examples, extreme examples, to show us that anyone who falls between a, a patriarch and a prostitute, this is true of you too. None of us are off the hook. The most wealthy among us, the most poor among us, the ones with the most status, the ones with the least status. Men, women, people who have their lives together and people who don't. Faith in Jesus, if it is real, is a faith that works, and that's true for all of us. So what do we know about Rahab? What what he tells us here is that Rahab's actions justified her when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So Rahab had heard, and this story's in Joshua 2, we're not going to turn there, but you can, you can look at that later if you want. Rahab had heard how the Lord had rescued Israel, the Red Sea and at the Jordan River had rescued Israel, and how his saving power was with them. Though a Gentile, she believed in the God of Israel. She believed. She believed in his power. She, she feared the Lord in this moment. We don't know how developed her faith was, but, but she did. So when these spies from Israel came to Rahab, she risked her life to love and care for her natural enemies. She risked her life to to provide for them because she feared the Lord. Rahab acted, and this is the point, the point James is making, Rahab acted on what she knew and what she believed. So what does saving faith produce? Saving faith produces sacrificial love for others. And do you notice how while Abraham's example contrasts with the demon's, the example of Rahab is contrasted with verse 15 and 16. That first illustration, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in, day, in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then here at the bottom you have Rahab who is providing for the needs of people in need. She's providing for their needs. And so, again, this point is just driven home. Living, saving faith acts in accordance with what it believes. And on the other side of that, dead, useless faith does not act in accordance with what it claims to believe. So the professions are the same, and the actions, the follow-through, is very different. And someone who is truly trusting in Jesus, they will be the ones who are following up their faith with good works done in his name. So, there's a concluding verse here that really summarizes the entire thrust of the passage. Verse 26. 
For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. That's his point. He says that, that essential thing three different times in this passage. That's what he's saying. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. What's the point? Faith without works is dead. It's dead. A person with a body severed from a soul is dead. You, you, I mean, it's a, very, it's a very simple point that he's making, but it's true, right? <laughs> a, a person with a body severed from a soul is dead. And so, he draws the parallel, a person with a faith severed from works is doomed. Doomed. If you're professing faith in Jesus and it's not changing your life at all, you have reason to wonder and question whether your faith in Jesus is real. So, just kind of a closing question for you. Do you mean what you say when you say you believe in Jesus? I'm not asking you if you say it. I'm not asking you if you believe in Jesus. Do you mean what you say when you say you believe in Jesus for salvation? That will be proven through works. That's how we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Not that we have to add anything pre-conversion so that God will look down on us in favor. We will one day be vindicated and our faith proven true by what we do for others. So we don't prove our faith through online arguments or personal persuasion. We don't prove our faith by showing how much we know about God. We provide evidence that our faith is alive by living a life of sacrificial obedience to God and sacrificial love for others. So I pray, I pray that it would be true of me, that it would be true of each of us, that the faith we confess together is real and saving, and it's obvious that it's real and saving because it is active in good works in this body, in this church, and in our city. Would you make that commitment to pray that with me as we move forward for the rest of this summer? That we would provide evidence that our faith is alive that we would show that the faith we confess is actual, real, saving faith by what we do. May we strive together with all that is in us to demonstrate the grace and the mercy that we have received in the gospel by working for the good of our neighbor, by working for the good of one another, all for Christ's glory. Jesus died to make us truly alive. He has given us new life by dying for our sins in his place. So let's live and let's work as we walk together in confessing true and saving faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use uh, sort of a hard word to conform us to the image of your son. I pray that each of us would take inventory of our own hearts. I pray that we would evaluate the impact our faith has had on our lives and on the lives of those closest to us. Are we just saying that we believe in Jesus or are we actually believing in Jesus?
James tells us the test is, do you have works? Because we know when we're united to Jesus, our lives will reflect his. Now, some of us are really challenged by that, and I pray that, like, like me, there are some here who are repenting, even now. And yet, there are others who will feel nothing but guilt from, from hearing a, a text like this. Uh, that, that doubts, unhealthy doubts, will creep in. Even though final vindication on the day of judgment will be evidenced by works. We don't bring any works to the table for initial justification. We are accepted fully by the God we have sinned against because you sent your son to die for our sins in our place. So before and as we repent and and strive to to do good works in your name, may we first rejoice in the grace that you've extended to us in Jesus. The only way for us to have a living faith is for you to make us alive. And so may we first be grateful for that grace, that work that you began in us, and yet to look forward to that last day where your work will be completed in us. We have full confidence that you will bring about the completion of your saving work in us. And as we are in the middle, in the space in between, I pray that you would give us the grace and the awareness that we need to grow. May our faith mature together as we do good works together in your name, in our church and in our city. So, Father, I pray that you would use your word now to change us, to invigorate us, to love those that you love, and to have a faith that works. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.